All right, guys, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts this morning. Last week, we looked at chapters 15 and 16, and we're continuing looking at chapter 16. You'll remember last week, Paul had gotten in this argument with a guy named Mark. And prior to that, they'd been on a missionary journey together, and they had this sharp disagreement. And after that, Paul comes back, and they decide to kind of go separate ways. And Paul has just recently been called in a dream to go over to Macedonia. Remember the man in his dream said, please come over to Macedonia to help us. And so the place we find ourselves in this text is that Paul, Silas, and Luke are rolling up into Macedonia which, I don't know about you, but I have a very vivid picture of the place that they went to because I've actually been to Philippi, which is the place that they find themselves first. And there were a couple things that I experienced going to Philippi because it was the first sort of biblical site that I went to. The first thing is, it's a very well-preserved historical city. And so I remember just thinking, wow, this is a very beautiful place. It's in the mountains. It's right by the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of amazing. And you really start to feel like you're walking on holy ground as you walk into Philippi. Such so interesting, too, because although it's thousands of years old, there's not even like a guard who's taking tickets or anything for you to go in there. You can just walk right into Philippi and, and check it out. But I think the second experience that I had was I remember standing next to the river where Lydia was baptized. We're going to get to that place in the text. And I remember thinking, this is like a little creek. This is just kind of an ordinary place. And I remember sort of having this feeling that the Bible was being demythologized for me. Because I think it's easy for us as we read the Bible to feel this distance from it and to feel like, these are really holy people and really holy things that happen. And there's almost sort of this glow on our Bible pages. And it helped me to go there and just to see, oh, there's a river. There's some rocks. There's some trees. This was just an ordinary city, an ordinary place. And it began to make me think that God just used ordinary people to accomplish the extraordinary things that we see in the pages of Scripture. And I think that we're going to see as we open the Bible this morning is this simple truth that God uses broken people. So you've got Paul fresh off this fight, this missionary journey, and we see, we'll see God really using him in a profound way in this text. So we're going to look at three ways that God uses broken people. The first one is that God opens hearts. Acts 16, verses 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed Upon us. So we begin to wonder, just before this text, 
as Paul sent out on this missionary journey, if his missionary journey is going to be successful. The reason that this question is in our mind is because he's just recently had this big conflict. And so we're thinking, okay, he's on this missionary journey. Is God not going to use him because he's in the middle of this sharp disagreement and chose to let Mark go this way and he's going to go this way? How are things going to turn out? And Paul rolls up into Macedonia and he's looking for a place to do ministry. Now, what we know is that the bare minimum for a synagogue to be formed in a Roman colony was that there needed to be 12 men. And apparently, there weren't even 12 men to form a synagogue because we know the pattern of Paul's ministry was to enter a synagogue and to teach there and to see how the Jew, Jewish people in that city would respond to the gospel. But he hears that there are a group of faithful women who are meeting outside of the town and having sort of an impromptu women's small group prayer meeting. And the leader of this prayer meeting is a woman named Lydia. Lydia is actually a pretty impressive person. She's a businesswoman. She's actually very capable. And the text actually says that she is a worshiper of God, which means she has some kind of faith, but it's fuzzy. She certainly doesn't believe in Jesus. And so what Paul and his ministry partners do, Paul, Silas, Luke, they roll up next to this river and they begin to have conversation with the women there about Jesus. And the text makes this statement. It says that the Lord opened her, that's Lydia's, heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And what we enter into in that one sentence is a tension that is present throughout Scripture. We see that in Paul's missionary journey, God was at work through him. So what's easier for us to do is to take this sentence and to take the part of it that we like. So some people, they really like the big sovereignty of God and how amazing he is and how awesome he is. And so they emphasize that God is the one who opened her heart. But what's de-emphasized is the way in which God opened her heart, which was that she paid attention to what the Apostle Paul was saying. So we do see the supernatural work of God and we see the normal, ordinary actions of men preaching the gospel. And those two things coming together and God using it to open Lydia's heart so that she pays attention to what's being said. We also know that there's a backstory that's leading into this. We know, as I've said, that Lydia was a worshiper of God which means there was already some openness in her. There was already a tendency for her to bow down and to worship God. She was kind of ripe to hear what Paul was saying. We also know that Paul had been placed in this exact place, in the exact circumstances, by the hand of God. Just in the last chapters of Acts, we see 
Paul's conversion, that he was on his way to Damascus, you remember, to persecute Christians. God snatched him up and saved him by his grace. And he sent him on this missionary journey through a winding set of circumstances that included a conflict that caused him to hear the Macedonian call to actually be in this place preaching this message to this woman. So what I'm saying is, God, although he opened Lydia's heart, it wasn't like a magic trick. Like God just swooped in and supernaturally did this thing without using people to accomplish his purpose. Maybe some of you, like me, have had a relative who's gone into a major heart surgery. And you've stood there talking to the doctor, and the doctor begins to explain to you what he is about to do. And he tells you that he is going to open up the chest cavity and do this and that on the person's heart so that he can fix the problem and that hopefully they can walk out of the hospital healthy and ready to go. Now, as they explain to you that they are going to open up the chest cavity, you don't literally think that that doctor is going to pry open their chest cavity with his hands, right? You understand that when he says, I'm going to open up the chest cavity, you understand that he's going to use tools to do that. They have, you know, their scalpels and all those different things that they're going to use to open up the chest cavity. Likewise, when the Bible says that God opened up Lydia's heart so that she would pay attention to what was said by Paul, we understand that God was using the normal tools, human speech, circumstances, even maybe the sound of the river, and Paul's able ability to articulate what he was saying to open her heart. So we see that there's a tension, but not a contradiction, between God's sovereignty and hum- humans' responsibility. God is sovereign, and human beings are responsible, which is really important for us to understand, because if we overemphasize God's sovereignty, we could easily become complacent. We just think, well, God is the one who saves people. God is the one who opens people's heart. So I don't really need to do anything. All I need to do is just kind of wait for God to miraculously change the hearts of the people around me. And they see just by the way that I hold my pen at work that he is God and they're going to come to church with me and believe in him and it's going to be all good. Or we can be people who so de-emphasize the sovereignty of God and emphasize human responsibility that we actually just walk through life burdened. I'm never doing enough. Maybe I just wasn't articulate enough. Maybe I just don't love people enough. Maybe I'm not caring enough toward people. Maybe if I was just a little bit more kind. And we so emphasize our responsibility that we actually begin to lose out on the joy of sharing the message of the gospel with other people And we so emphasize our responsibility that we lose sight of God's faithfulness. And I think what God wants us to see in this passage is that it is both and. We will find freedom in sharing the gospel with other people when we understand that God uses us to open people's hearts to the gospel. And then 
will have confidence not to be complacent, but to be purposeful in sharing the gospel with people, knowing that God is at work through us. Okay, so here's what happens. Paul shares the gospel with Lydia. And then he he and his buddies, Luke and Silas, decide that this is sort of going to be the hub of their ministry next to this river. And so on a daily basis, they continue to go back to this river to share the gospel, presumably with Lydia's friends. And they're bringing other people, and it's becoming a place where gospel ministry is happening. And we see that in the midst of these events, that God brings freedom to others through Paul. Acts 16, 16 through 19. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Okay, so we see day after day, Paul, Silas, they're going next to the river to preach the gospel. And apparently they have a new friend who they would like to not be their friend. And this woman is following them on a daily basis to this place of prayer. And she actually has pretty good theology. She's saying to everyone around, after hearing the gospel from Paul, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And you can see Paul and Silas on day one, they're pretty patient, okay, she's obviously got a mental illness, she's kind of demon-possessed, and, and they also know that she's enslaved. So there have been a group of men who have made her their slave because apparently this demon has been giving her the ability to tell the future. So she's a fortune teller through demonic power. And so you can see Paul and Silas the first day, you know, these guys are servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming you the way of salvation. They're like, okay, let's just be patient. And then as the days go on, day by day, just start to get a little bit more annoyed, right? Oh, man, I wish she wasn't here. I wish she wasn't saying that. And it's just starting to drive them crazy. Now, what we would think the text would say is, but then Paul came to his senses and he recognized that he was kind of being a jerk. And so he had compassion on this woman because she was a victim. But that's not what the text says. The text says... He got to the point where he was greatly annoyed. I don't usually do this, but this was kind of fun. So I looked up the Greek. Greatly annoyed means that he was worked up, troubled, displeased, offended, and pained. Here's what happens. Paul blows his lid. He gets super angry. And here's what he does. In his anger, he does gospel ministry. (laughs) This is ridiculous. 
he gets so mad that he uses sort of his apostolic gifts to cast this demon out. And he says, you can hear the anger in his voice, right? I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of our... And the demon goes away. And you can see like, everyone's just like, oh, thank God that the demon came out of her. And it it leaves us with a lot of questions though, right? How could God use this guy? Like we like to have this picture of Paul as an apostle, like he's always filled with love and joy and patience and all those things. And he is not in this instant. So why does God choose to use him even though he is a very broken and imperfect person. You know, God loves to show off by using weirdos. That's a one-sentence summary of what God does in the Bible. You've been told a lie that God only uses spiritual superheroes to accomplish his purpose. But if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see the whole truth is that these people that God uses are messed up. They're broken. And God actually loves to show off his grace, his power, his glory, and his supremacy by using people like us. It's actually kind of a disappointing story. There's no heroes in the Bible except for God. I was reminded of this in an unlikely place. My wife, Melissa, and I were scooping snow off of our roof. Who knew you had to do that? I didn't know that people did that before I moved to Minnesota. So we bought this tool, literally called the Minnesota. I would recommend it. It's a pretty good tool. And so my wife climbed up on the roof, and she's got a shovel, and I'm using the Minnesota, which is this long pole with this contraption on the end that helps you get snow off the roof. And so for hours the other night, my kids are inside having the time of their lives because no one was watching them, just (laughs) destroying the inside of the house. And we're outside together cleaning off the roof. If you were to have a video of us cleaning off the roof, it would be a clinic on inefficiency. <laughs> like We've never done this before. We didn't even know that this was a thing, and we're just trying desperately to get the snow off the roof. Guys, what that shows about us is that even though we had the right tools, we were the wrong people for the job. Here's what's true about God. Here's what God does throughout the Bible. He cleans the roof off with a toothpick. Incredibly efficiently. He takes imperfect people, like you and I, and he accomplishes powerful ministry so that people look at us and they say, if God could use them, he could use anybody. I think that's the conclusion that we're supposed to come to based on this story. If God can use the Apostle Paul, he can use me. Because the Apostle Paul struggled with anger and he struggled with pride. 
And he struggled with lust. And he was a human being, just like you and I. And we have to know that our brokenness does not disqualify us from God using us in powerful ways. But if we will bring our brokenness to God, we will admit it. We will realize that we're not just saved by grace. We are also empowered to do ministry by grace. God's grace is sufficient for us, Paul says in another place, because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Everyone who was there and saw Paul yelling at this enslaved woman knew that they had just seen the power of God because it wasn't by his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, that this vital ministry happened. God wants to bring freedom to the people around you through you, the real you. Not who you're trying to be, not by the face that you're trying to put on, but really through you. He wants to use your life. Okay, so then we think, okay, this amazing ministry happened. God's hand was evidently on Paul through his grace. What's going to happen next? They get thrown in prison. All right? I don't think it always turns out well. They get tossed in prison, and they still believe that God is going to use them. And God actually gives hope to a jailer through them. A third way that God uses broken people is God gives hope. Acts 16, 25 through 33. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Here's what we see in this text. We see a contrast between somebody who's a believer in Jesus and somebody who's not. So Paul and Silas, although Paul did this ministry in anger. He didn't deserve to go to prison. And the owners of this woman got mad at Paul because he had cast this demon out of their slave. And as a result, she couldn't make them money anymore by their fortune telling. So Paul and Silas are in prison unjustly. And they know that God uses broken people. And so even though they're in prison, They see it as an opportunity to bring hope to those around them. And so we find them singing and rejoicing and praying. And what we find is that at rock bottom, the hope of Paul and Silas was in Jesus. He was their security 
He was their joy. He was, even in the worst circumstances, the place where their hope was. Sure, they liked being out, being able to see the Mediterranean Sea. Sure, they liked the good weather. Sure, they liked all of those things, the food that they got to eat outside of the prison. But although those things were taken away and they were experiencing suffering, they found their joy in being in the presence of Jesus. And so they were able to rejoice even in prison. That's a portrait of a Christian. Someone who can find joy, not be happy, find joy anywhere because they know Jesus and life is found in him. In contrast to that, we have the Philippian jailer. Talk about a, de- a bad day on the job, right? You have one job when you're a jailer. Don't let anyone get out of jail. Here's what happens. The Philippian jailer falls asleep on the job. So he doesn't know about the miraculous intervention of God, the earthquake and the bonds being released and, and all of those things. All he knows is he woke up and the jail's open and he was sleeping. And so he's like, oh shoot, I just lost my job, which is kind of what I was respected for in this community. I just lost my way of providing for my family. I just lost my security and my hope. See, that's a portrait of the world. If your security is not found in Jesus, you'll place your security in your job or your looks or your athletic ability. Or your family. And at some point, whatever it is that you place your security in will be taken away from you. It could be taken away in an instant over the course of the next 80 years. It doesn't matter. It will be taken away from you. And if that's your hope, then your hope will be gone and you'll be left in the same place that this Philippian jailer was left in. It wasn't just his job that was taken away. It was his hope that was taken away. And because of that, he was devastated and destroyed to such a degree that the only way out he could think of was to kill himself. So he takes out his sword and he's about to kill himself. But Paul and Silas had a greater priority than just escaping from prison. Their goal was to win people to Jesus. And so they stayed in the prison cell, even though they were unjustly there. And Paul says, don't harm yourself. Stop. Don't harm yourself. I have good news for you. I have a hope for you that's deeper than the hope that you were finding in your job security. And in your reputation in the community and your ability to provide for your family. Let me share with you about a hope that can't be taken away from you. And the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Because he sees that Paul and Silas have something that he doesn't have. And they give him a very simple answer. They don't say, here's a Bible, read it from cover to cover. They don't say, pray this prayer. They don't say anything of that sort. They give him a very simple answer. Believe in Jesus. 
Just believe in Jesus. Let me encourage you, if this Christianity thing has become really complicated for you through religion and through your upbringing and all those things, let me make it really simple for you. Believe in Jesus. There is no hope and no salvation in our own works, in our own efforts, in our own possessions. There's no hope in trying to improve yourself because you're beyond repair. The only one who can save you is Jesus. We believe in a salvation that is not within us or not about us, but it is fully and completely the work of Jesus apart from us. And so all we have to do to be saved, all that this jailer had to do to be saved is believe in Jesus. It's that simple. And this man who was on the verge of killing himself sees the beauty of the gospel and he bows the knee to Jesus. And his life and the life of his family and presumably the life of the entire community is changed through him because his testimony was, I was on the verge of suicide and Jesus brought me back. Let me just encourage you, if you came this morning to church and you are deeply discouraged, you've even considered suicide, let me encourage you with this. There is nothing you have to do. You don't have to chase anything. You don't have to do anything. We're not asking you to perform any religious rituals or tasks or have a certain church attendance record or connection group attendance record. The message that we're offering to you is completely free and freeing. Believe. Just believe that you are loved exactly where you are depressing thoughts and all, and that Jesus himself can rescue you. Let me talk to you who, who are Christians, and you just feel like you've forgotten this again. You know what happens? We're all like leaky buckets. It's like you pour the gospel in, and as soon as it gets in, it just drops out. We all have this default mode in our hearts to just believe that we're saved by our own efforts, our own works. So maybe you've forgotten the good news of the gospel. Let me remind you, the gospel is one word, believe. Do you believe? Then you're saved. You're as righteous as you can possibly be. And God looks at you and he sees you the same way he sees Jesus as his beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. Let's pray. Jesus, what good news. That the gospel is simple. We're simple people. We're broken people. We're hurting people. We're angry people. And we need it to be simple. So thank you that you sent Jesus 
to rescue us. That Christianity is not about us trying to be good enough or rescue ourselves. But it's that Jesus came down to rescue us and that all we have to do is believe. I pray for those who are here this morning and are deeply discouraged that you would open their hearts, that they would believe, that we would be people who believe, that we would stop trying so hard to be good enough and that we would entrust you to use our broken lives to impact the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.